Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. We're glad to have you with us again as we come into what I am going to dub election month. It's going to be it's going to be a whole lot of fun. Um luckily though, luckily we have we have one more episode to record before before the debates start and and we get into all of that. Maybe less luckily, the election is already such an issue that we can't help but talk about it. But what we're going to be talking about today is is what I would call election adjacent because we're going to be talking about the Supreme Court vacancy that has that has recently popped up and everything that that comes along with that. If you didn't know, Supreme Court's kind of a big deal. <laughs> they seem to be able to do a lot of things and they seem to be able to be they seem to be really important based on how people react and discuss them. Um I mean Donald Trump was elected in part based on who he might pick as a Supreme Court justice. It's actually that big of a deal. The Supreme Court actually does have such significant power that it may be the most important thing Trump did this entire his entire presidency, even if he goes another term. No, and it is something to consider. I mean, you talk about, you know, a president who serves for four or eight years, but the justices they appoint can serve for well, for life. And I mean, I mean, the longest serving justice was, you know, I think something something around 36 years that they served. And you could have someone serve theoretically longer. I mean, in this case, you know, Amy Coney Barrett is 48 years old. She could be serving for 40 plus years if she gets appointed. You know, she could be the 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 new record for longest serving Supreme Court justice. You know, of course, unless someone else you know, beats her to it in the next 40 years. But, but it's, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a significant impact that you have, not just on current politics, but on future politics. Yeah, you made me look it up. It looks like it's 36 years is the longest time. I, that seems lower than what I expected. Than actually. what you'd think. Yeah, I would have thought longer. But I mean, thir- like, as you said, 36 years is almost two generations, to, you know, in, way, in terms of how we think of mm-hmm. it, at least the... Uh, a full generation and that's a that matters that makes them much powerful for much longer especially in terms of you know you talk about someone serving in congress for like 20 or 30 years but how much of that time did they have significant influence and power you know mm-hmm. and how much were they able to accomplish versus a supreme court justice who day 1 is one of nine justices, and therefore their vote has significant influence on incredibly important cases. Right. You know, day one. Right. And almost, it seems like all of the important decisions of our generation have at some point been in front of the Supreme Court. Um, mm-hmm. I think of a, uh, various immigration things have been over the years. Uh, the Obviously, Roe v. Wade is a big one, and uh, and questions about abortion rights. Um, that's the one that people talk about a lot. Is something that may come up again as the justices become, as the balance shifts more and more conservative. Um, Obamacare, whether or not that was actually something that was legal as it was presented, it was a big was a was a huge thing that was, was decided a, was a by one, yeah. the Supreme Court. It seemed like the Supreme Court's role in that was more important than the legislature in a lot of ways. And so it's a these are. These are the kind of big scale things that shape the nation and 
beyond the the day-to-day laws that run it. These are the these are the things that change things one way or another in one direction or another in terms of culture and other things. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, uh, discrimination laws and, and racism and things in the past have been that courts have played a big role in. Absolutely. So what we want to do is is we want to go – we want to paint with broad strokes here and talk a little bit about the Supreme Court itself how it works, how it was designed to work, how it's evolved over the years, the power that it has, and the implications of that in today's current debate about this election cycle and the appointment of a Supreme Court justice so late in that cycle. And the first thing to understand about a court is how they hear cases. Um, You need some controversy between two parties in order for there to be a case. Because that's how courts hear cases, they, their power is extremely limited in ways that the other branches is not, are not, that ways especially a legislature is not. A legislature can see an issue and can decide. You know, they can go look for things. Supreme Court and a court in general, the problem has to come to them. And the problem is not the one dealing with the things they want to deal with. It's a narrow point at which there is a conflict. And in order to decide that conflict, they have to speak about the law. Often when we discuss the Supreme Court, people discuss what the Supreme Court should have the power to decide on. And at the end of the day, whatever you think would be ideal, whatever problems you think they should or should not be able to address, they have to be able to address the controversies that arise before them. A Supreme Court is the highest court. There is no higher court in the land. There is no other body that can decide the controversy. If there is a controversy that needs to be decided, they have to have the authority to do that, which makes the fact that their interpretations and that their judgments affect the law and even affect how we interpret the Constitution a secondary thing. That's not what they're doing mm-hmm. primarily. Primarily, they're deciding the controversy. And they may be, and to do that, they have to be able to interpret the laws and events and the, you know, the facts of the case. They have to be able to look at the laws around the case, and they have to be able to look at the Constitution, which is the supreme law of the land, and, and to decide things that then have implications on how everyone else looks at it, because they are the high court. They set the standard. What they interpret is essentially law for lower courts and how they interpret things. And it's, uh, it's, and that's the, some ways that's getting into precedent as well. The idea of precedent, the way our court system works is when a decision is decided, when a decision is decided, you're welcome for that. (laughs) This is, this is why I'm here. Uh, So succinct. (laughs) When, When a decision has been made, uh, when a court They call the court ruling a holding a lot of the time. The court's holding is going to, as I said, affect those laws and things, and that sets a precedent because the highest court has the final say. But that precedent isn't necessarily operative for the highest court because the highest court can always say something new. But at least for all the lower courts, precedent becomes extremely important. And it is important to a degree. An example of that would be would be Roe v. Wade, where 
abortion is considered constitutional now, not because there was a constitutional amendment, but because of the Supreme Court's decision, which affects all the lower courts. So if it comes into a lower court, they're going to decide based off of that precedent by the Supreme Court. But at any point, the Supreme Court, when a case comes up, could overturn that precedent. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And it has to work its way up to them. Um, it, initially, that would have been, initially with how courts work, that would have been a, uh, that's an interesting process. At this point, what you do is you, you go fishing for the right case. So, so if you have something you want heard, you can inevitably find or craft a scenario that allows the the court to hear it. Well, and and there are there are so many cases that the Supreme Court has the chance to hear but chooses not to that they they by definition have to pick and choose. Right. They are not hearing every court. They're not hearing every no, case. No, they have to turn down a lot. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Now, if you look at the Supreme Court clause of the Constitution, You'll wonder where the rest of it is. That was a nice intro about the Supreme Court. Where's the rest of the, the clause in the Constitution, Dan? Uh, seriously, seriously, go read through it. You, you will be surprised. Give it some thought first. Think about what the Supreme Court does, what it has power to do. Uh, you could even list it. You know, Go read news and be like, what, is, what does the Supreme Court do? And what are its powers? And how is it supposed to operate? And then go carefully read the very short section in the Constitution about the Supreme Court. And what you will find is a lot of the details and even the general idea of what it does seems to be missing. <laughs> it's like, if that sounds like I'm about to make a constitutional argument, I'm not. I'm just observing that, that's, that it's not there. Here are some of the things that are not there that might strike you that the Supreme Court has the power to interpret the Constitution. Not there. That the Supreme Court has nine justices. Not there. That the Supreme Court does anything concerning identifying rights. Not there. <laughs> like there's, there's, there's an enormous gap between what the function of the court is today and what it does and what you find in the Constitution. And I don't say that as a critique, because I think what the Constitution says is actually extremely vague. It's very vague. It's vague enough that in some ways what the Supreme Court does is determined in part by what does a high court do. What does a court do? And what would the highest court have to do? And in part by what the initial Supreme Courts ended up doing with those ideas. In some ways, it's tradition that established the specifics of how the Supreme Court ro mm -hmm, rules, mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. actually the Constitution. Because the Constitution is, is quite vague. It's very vague. No, and, it, and it's, it's definitely an interesting thing, as you said. I mean, they were not concerned at all about this clause because they considered it pretty obvious what the Supreme Court was going to do. Everyone understood how, how, how courts, courts function yeah. and how the legal system works. And they're like, this is the easiest part of our job. So they crank out a paragraph and call it good. And then over time, things have shifted because ambiguity will always be, be filled in over time. In a lot of political theory, the court was actually traditionally a part of the executive concern. You would, you, you, 
they would not be distinguished, even when you, well, initially a government wasn't distinguished into its branches at all. But as it began to be distinguished, in a lot of cases it was considered an arm of the, not an arm of the executive, but a part of the executive, because the courts themselves have no authority to enforce their decisions. It depends entirely on the executive. And uh, in some ways, they're interpreting how to enforce things. And so you can see why that would be, that it's closely related. How they're connected. Yeah, the Supreme Court, it's, it's important to note that the Supreme Court has no teeth. Like they literally, they decide these things and they hope that it happens. <laughs> in, in some ways, uh, so, the legislature is somewhat similar. I don't know. The legislature carries uh, more authority, I think, in, a, in more direct authority through their representation. But the judge's decisions depend entirely on the absence of the legislature from overruling them or making laws that would address these things directly, and the abs and the assistance of the of the executive branch in taking what they say seriously. At the highest levels of the of the U.S. government, it's important to note that that what keeps things working and keeps things in order is that they do it. They don't have to do it. There's nothing nothing forcing the president's hand to do what the Supreme yeah. Court says. There's nothing forcing the legislature. The balance is held by by good faith, essentially. Which is crazy if you think about it. You think about these nine individuals who decide something and they – it's not just that they don't have a, a gun in their hand to enforce it. But, but more than that, they don't have – Agencies upon agencies <laughs> right. who work for them, they do not control the purse strings like the legislature does. They simply write their write their opinion and entrust that it will be followed. Right, right. Um, like you said, the the Congress has the purse. The president has the sword. The executive has the sword. That's power. Supreme Court doesn't have any of that. So when you look at what a Supreme Court does, and I've already suggested it, and if you have any concept of, of the history of the Supreme Court, this you'll know this. The Supreme Court's what the Supreme Court does and how they do it has evolved over time. As you this part of this is captured in how they talk about Supreme Court justices today. Uh, if you hear conservatives talk about it, what they're looking for, and the, the terms I've heard thrown around the last week have been they want an originalist. And specifically, they want a textualist. So if the Supreme Court's going to be interpreting law, right, they're going to be not, not interpreting it per se directly. They're going to be deciding a controversy that involves interpreting the law. They have to interpret the law and the Constitution. They have to decide upon what basis to interpret it. Now, an originalist is someone who's going to try and interpret it as it was originally meant. You don't have to. You could read the words and you could say, what does this mean to me? And you could interpret it that way. An originalist suggests that there's something about law that was trying to be captured in the time and in the context. And if you want to understand the law as they intended it, if you think their intent was important, you have to go back and you have to look at it through that lens. If you want to find original intent, though, the problem is that it becomes immediately very difficult <laughs> to find what people intended, <laughs> especially because it seems like you're finding the intent of a legislative body. Now, what was the intent of 300 of people who passed people. a law? Yeah. What, what, do you, what is the intent there? Well, you could see what <laughs> some of them said about it, especially the person who presented it, right? That person's going to speak a lot about it. Is it his intent? You just assume when it, people were quiet, they agreed with him? 
Because it's not his law, it's their law. Right, it's their law. It's an act of Congress. It's an act of that body. The majority can has the power to declare the law. Clearly intent, this is, you're already into a very gray area where there's lots of room for interpretation. <laughs> so the most firm ground that they've been able to find is to say, well, the legislative body as a group agreed on this language. So whatever communal, whatever group meaning you can find in that law and in that writing is there in the words. And so you need to get, you need to look at the text and they call these textualists. So you want an originalist textualist or so the, uh, the argument goes. And that's exactly what Amy Coney Barrett is. If that ends up being who is, who is, uh, chosen as a chief justice. And the textualist tries to put the words of, looks at the words of the text, tries to put them in the context of the time and what the words say and what they would have meant to people reading it at that time who were, who would have had a good idea of what it meant. Again, still a lot of room for interpretation, right? Still loose. But much less room. It's, but it's less definitely room. much tighter. Right. It is tighter. Looking at definitions of words and understanding of sentence structure, that can be more conclusively agreed upon than the intent of 300 completely separate individuals right. acting as a whole. Right. And and is it a better measure of the intent of the legislature? I don't know. But it's it, it's certainly more concrete. And you can say that their their words mattered and they thought they mattered the legislature does not just randomly put these sentences together they do not just randomly construe this order right it's they it's carefully crafted and uh and that's how they saw it and they agreed to it so you've got something right something concrete you can look at other theories of interpretation reject the idea that the original intent is what matters you could say as i as i said earlier that what they originally intended isn't that important. What's important is whether it's actually fair, whether it's actually just. And so is making it work now. Right, basically. right, right. What's the what is the right this controversy that's before you represents a problem that the law hasn't solved as it's written. So interpreting the law maybe isn't your best bet. Maybe maybe what you need to be doing is establishing the law in some sense. You need to be saying, what is fair in this situation? You need to take into consideration the actual facts before you, not just the words on the text, the actual people you're visiting with, the actual events that happened, and give them justice. Give them what's fair as a, as a judge should do in some sense, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, and there is a lot of logic to that. Yeah, and so in in some ways, both sides of this, this is the kind of what the two sides have become at this point. The Republicans, textualists, originalists, the Democrats, uh, more interested in in what the law should say, and what what would be just in these circumstances, and what would be right now, and they convey that with terms like uh, some of the famous famous chief justices over, or not chief justices, excuse me, but justices of the Supreme Court over the years indicated things like, you know, the constitution is a living thing and, and because the people are living and you need to adapt it to, to its time. It's not something frozen in time because the people are not and constitution should be adapting. And if you actually look at the word constitution, that's 
kind of what it implies in a lot of ways. Like if you look at the US constitution, the US has a written constitution. It's something concrete. It's something stable. It doesn't change. Very few other countries had a written constitution until ours. Since then, it's become something of a common thing, but it's still not the, it's not universal. Places like England, Britain have never had a written constitution. But if you ask them what their constitution is, they could tell you all about it. Because a constitution is the way it's constituted, not necessarily a document. It's how it actually works. The constitution is how the government works. The constitution of government is the way that the, the law is made and enforced and these kind of things. So that the U.S. government is in something of a unique, not unique, not entirely unique, but having a written constitution puts them in a different position because they have this document that's supposed to lay out how it works. Then they have how it actually works. The living, breathing <laughs> government. Living, breathing government. No such thing. But the, the way that the people are actually doing their jobs and how the balance of power actually pans out and which of those should be authoritative. I, I don't know. You, you, you can, you would have to dig in and say, is there a reason to have some moral commitment to the Constitution? Is there some reason to have a moral commitment to the way it is now? And and try and navigate, or maybe you have principles beyond that and try and weigh them against it. It's not an easy question. It's not an intuitive question. And you can see why the justices would split on it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which brings me to one more historical point that I want to make. The courts initially just tried to decide the controversies. If you look at early constitutional law cases, they were few and largely uninteresting. As they started to shift towards the this the emerging theory, which was that maybe they shouldn't just be interpreting, they shouldn't just be originalists. <laughs> of course, they were originalists initially. Originally, they originally <laughs> the people were originalists because they literally heard the laws and saw them and saw it created and like you know these people had real history there. As the years went on, uh, it slowly, you slowly started to get justices who were more interested in deciding what would be just at the time. You get the industrial revolution through the 1800s, right? You get the growth of the labor party and the, the switch in economic theories. And, and all of this creates cultural changes that end up leading to justices on the Supreme Court who are more inclined to decide what would be just in the specific case. In those cases, then, so as they start to do that, you get this divide I've talked about, um, and the court begins to transition from a court trying to figure out what the law meant and how it applies to a court trying to figure out what is just. And as they do that, they interpret a lot of the clauses of the Constitution more broadly. You get things like the Interstate Commerce Clause, which which is interpreted broader and broader and broader until it can apply to almost any economic exchange in almost any circumstances, including Wickard versus Filburn where a guy is growing to feed his own animals and they stop him and they say, no, that's against the law. And the law is justified because it affects interstate commerce. Because if you grow this, you won't buy it on the market. And that's, that's a, an expansion. <laughs> if, if that isn't the most uh, hypothetical, not hypothetical, if that isn't the most theoretical and loose way to apply the law. I don't know know what it is. <laughs> right. And the interpretations get looser and looser because they're trying to figure out what they're not necessarily concerned with what 
with strictly construing it as it may have been before, but with more and more with what would be just. And, and thus the Supreme Court's arguments tend more towards justification rather than explanation. So the Supreme Court moves into this phase where it gets the definitions get broader, the powers of the government get broader. And then finally, they step into kind of where we are today, where the Supreme Court decides not only should they be making the, the definitions broader so that more can happen, not only should they be trying to analyze the justice in a particular case and decide what would be, what would be fair and what would be just, but they start to make decisions about the law in such a way that they are creating new rights and they are creating new laws. This is what happens with the right to privacy that eventually allows for abortion. Um, this is what happens with the quotas that are imposed for racial discrimination and for uh, affirmative action. This, this happens in a number of other ways where, where you can trace it through history. And if all of this seems like an inane backstory, the backstory you never wanted to read for current events, it's because it illustrates an incredibly important point, which if you do not understand, you will not understand the Supreme Court. Judges are appointed by the president. They are confirmed by the Senate. At the end of the day, the judges we have now, the court that we have now making the decisions, is last generation's political appointees. The courts initially were intended not to be political. They were not supposed to be making political decisions. They were supposed to be deciding cases and controversies. No, and, 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 and let me add to that. When you think about a judge in a typical court whose job it is to, to judge, to decide a case, and if that case is between you and your neighbor and, and you're being – and you're the defendant and you're under arrest – and you're trying to argue your case, the last thing you want is that judge deciding that case based on political views instead of on the facts of the case and the law. You don't want the judge saying, basically, you're innocent, but I'm going to rule that you're guilty in order to change the law as part of my political agenda, right? That would be the last thing that anyone would want in a court case, and it seems insane that that would ever happen, except for the fact that the Supreme Court is no longer about those individual cases. The purpose of the Supreme Court and the reason that they spent so little time talking about it was because the purpose of the Supreme Court was to resolve these controversies. The purpose of the Supreme Court is no longer to resolve the controversies. When people talk about Roe v. Wade, they don't talk about the fact of whether or not Roe was able to have an abortion. It's not about that. It's not about Roe at all. It's not about that case. It's about the law that was created by that case. And the reason that has happened is because, as Dan's saying, it's no longer about the case, it's about politics. And that's what that evolution has entailed, is a shift away from what is best in this particular case to 
what is the law that we're going to create through our precedent. And that shift is not something that we're condemning, nor are we endorsing it. Our observation is that if you were going to- This is what's happened. (laughs) This is what's happened. And this was not only what happened, but this was entirely predictable because the president appoints the judge and the Senate confirms it. And if the president appoints the judge and the judge's decisions affect the laws that he wants made, the, the, the president is not just the executive branch, he's one of the most powerful legislatures through his veto. And if he and his party want something done, <laughs> then they will appoint judges that will with uphold that thing. Even if it's unintentional, they'll, they'll appoint judges who they agree with in their judgments. They will appoint judges who they respect for their opinions. And the result is that you will get political judges. And the political judges will decide more and more based on their politics and personal opinions, and less and less based on interpreting what someone else thought should happen. And as they do that, and as they get more and more power to do that, as that becomes more and more of an accepted, socially acceptable game, they will do it more, and they will become more and more activist in how they do it to the point where they are making laws. That is an entirely predictable effect of that system of appointing judges. Yeah, and that was the point I was trying to make with that example, is not that the Supreme Court is inherently wrong— but that the Supreme Court as it stands is no longer really a part of the judicial system in the way we think of the judicial, the judicial system. The Supreme Court are no longer judges but are in fact legislators. Legislators. They, they are legislating. People talk about judges legislating from the bench as an evil thing, but we're talking about it as just a, an inevitable thing, something that's been going on for years. That's, that is the reality. Roe v. Wade is a constitutional amendment in its effect. Whether yeah, or not is. whether or not you agree with it is not relevant. What's relevant is the fact that that's, that's the reality. That is the law of the land. Because of the Supreme Court, and that's the world that we live in, and we need to understand that in order to talk about and understand the Supreme Court effectively. It is, and it's and it's critical to realize what they to see that to see the Supreme Court come into its power as it is, and to see the impact it has on the federal government and how politics works is a big deal. Because two hundred years ago, who? Who the Supreme Court justice was was almost irrelevant. <laughs> were they a competent lawyer? Were they were they a competent judge? Good. Okay, they can do the job. They're fit. Today, it makes all the difference in the world. It was just a matter of time that was going to lead to this. They're political appointees. They're just old, older than the other people because they're in there for life, and so that makes them slightly more conservative, just by default, just by by. The fact that they're a generation ago, in many cases, right? <laughs> yeah, they're, not, be, they're not. They're more going conservative. to be slightly behind the times. Yeah, they're not more conservative in the sense of the political parties, but more conservative in the sense that your grandparents are more conservative than you are. Yeah, the result is that for most of the U.S. history, they've applied a steady break to the expansion of government power, to the uh, to the interpretation of law, and those kind of things. They've been they've applied a slowing effect. 
But they cannot stop things, because the laws today that are ruled unconstitutional are written by people who are appointing the judges of tomorrow. <laughs> like, if, if it's not constitutional today, you know, if the Supreme Court won't go with it today, but a lot of people want it, well, that's fine, because they're going to get judges who agree with it, right? They're gonna, it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. And as Brad indicated, this is their, their role is becoming increasingly legislative, and it's becoming increasingly legislative for good reason. So here's a historical example, example to kind of illustrate this point. The era of FDR and the Great Depression and World War II is a fascinating political landscape that we have not spent a ton of time on. But looking at the Supreme Court, it's incredibly relevant for a number of reasons. A number, <laughs> a number of reasons. Um, FDR's New Deal was a massive, a massive government welfare program that was fundamentally different than anything that had been tried before. And so, of course, it came... So, of course, it eventually came to the Supreme Court, in fact, multiple times with different different aspects of the New Deal, and was potentially going to be either, either approved or ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. And this, of course, is, is going back to what Dan said before about how the Supreme Court is the generation before its political appointees. And so you have FDR... And he's already appointed several Supreme Court justices, but there are also quite a few from before. And this is at the height of FDR's political power. And yet it looks like the Supreme Court might strike down the New Deal, which not only is FDR's baby, but is vastly popular. Vastly popular. Oh, yeah. I mean, everyone wants the New like Like, everyone is on the same page for the most part. There's never universal agreement. But right, but yeah, his approval was FDR's approval was second to almost nobody in U.S. history, especially during that time. And and yet, because of this system, the 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 Supreme Court system, which is why FDR came up with with his idea of court packing, which is now famous, it's actually famous and associated with FDR, is the idea of he was going to increase the number of Supreme Court justices, which now seems insane, except for the fact that the only reason there are nine Supreme Court justices is because Congress decided there would be nine. Congress passed a law saying there's going to be Supreme Court justices. So all you'd have to do to change the number of Supreme Court justices is pass a new law. That is literally all you have to do. There is no other barrier to, to packing the Supreme Court. Except for the fact that it would go against, you know, hundreds of years of tradition. And and it's interesting the power that tradition has. And it's interesting that FDR, even though he was immensely popular, the, the court packing idea and the legislation he proposed backfired. And it backfired terribly. And to the to the fact that he is now, I mean, even to this day, despite all the other things he's done, he's still remembered for trying to pack the courts and <laughs> and is known as a bit of a tyrannical president for trying to do that. You know, he's trying to bully his way 
past all the laws is the idea that goes along is with the it. idea even though yeah even though the nine judges is not in the constitution it's mm-hmm. not he's mm-hmm. not actually but it's it, and it's funny because that's that is so much around the supreme court is tradition as we said before it's not actually in there it's it's what it's what's actually happening and it's and it has no more authority than then it would bother people if you'd stopped like it's in some ways it the supreme court is a game and it's a game that's developed over many many years and most of the rules are unwritten and if you break those rules then the game is over you know the jig is up like if, <laughs> if every president started just he would get into office and, and he had a majority in congress and he would quickly put five more judges or reduce the number and make sure he reduced it in a way that it got rid of the other people or, you know, however, and he messed with the court so that the court then supported everyone he had, then the court would become irrelevant, right? They, their decisions, they would just be another legislature. But just a rubber stamping one. A rubber stamping legislature. As it is, they are a legislature, but they're a distinct legislature with a different set of rules than the other legislature. They went just rubber stamp. This game actually matters right now. And if you allow packing the courts, well, the game stops mattering. And it's it's definitely it's definitely a Pandora's box in the sense that once you do it, it can never be undone. Which is right. why it was resisted back then and, and why and why even today, as people say, we should pack the courts as a a response and as a threat against the Republicans. You know, the, the liberals, some liberal pundits are saying we should pack the courts or at least threaten to is not being mm-hmm. taken seriously because everyone knows it would immediately backfire, that it's not worth it. Yeah, the blowback would be on them, the people who do it first. And then and then if they did it anyway, if they if they they push through whatever blowback they receive for it, uh, for even trying, which can be significant, it was for FDR, it is that was the was a low point when he tried to do that then then the next people will just do it when they get elected it it doesn't end up providing you with a long-term victory it just it creates really a new game it would just create a new game and a new game where whoever's in office wins and that's i mean it's already kind of like that but it's people are not comfortable with changing that and they would do not want the fallout of being the ones who who first break the rules no and 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 that brings us to to today, talking about, you know, here we are right before an election, you know, um, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has passed away, and now there's this vacancy. And and of course the Republicans want to choose, want to want to appoint a a Supreme Court justice before the election and all the all the liberals are freaking out saying why would the republicans want to do this when four years ago when obama was president they said we should wait and and the answer is very simple the republicans said that then because their president wasn't in office i i feel like i i really want to explain to these pundits it's very obvious and of course they know why <laughs> they know why they know yeah. why but it's it's because it's a game because because in this case, the Republicans, yeah, you can argue that they're playing hardball, but they're just playing the game. You know, in 2016, the Republicans had a stronger hold 
on the Congress than the Democrats do now. And they use that power to slow down the process and, and stop Obama's appointee from getting appointed, from getting nominated, and allow Trump to choose that justice. Now, in 2020, where they do have the control, unlike the Democrats who didn't in 2016, they're trying to use that power to get their candidate in. And of course, the Democrats are using their power, which is to say something and to make them look bad, which is, of course, is all part of the game. It's all just a part of this right, game right. that we're playing, that right. both sides are playing to get as much advantage as they can. Right. Mitch McConnell tried to put a sheen on the fact that the Republicans were rejecting Obama's nomination, saying, oh, it's something to do with the election year. That's It's utter nonsense. <laughs> it was nonsense. As you said, it's, it's part of the political game. Uh, that he must have felt like at the time that that would have been better way to present the fact that they don't want one of Obama's justices getting in and they hope to win the election and get their own in than saying something else. I don't know why he said it. Obviously, it doesn't represent what most of the Republicans thought. Most of the Republicans would have told you straight up, no, we don't want your guy in. We want our guy in. And we're going to, and because we have the majority in the Senate, we're going to stop your appointee. Like no, it's, which it's really, yeah, really which, straightforward. Which, of course, is something else we could talk about in in this podcast is the two faced nature of politicians that that people that politicians feel this this incessant need to to, to lie. I mean, that's what we're talking about. We're talking <laughs> it's, about it's straight lying. up lying. It's straight up lying. Even when straight everyone knows, sides, yeah. even when everyone knows the truth, you know, Mitch McConnell is just straight up lying. And then these pundits are are saying, why are the Republicans flip flopping? When they know why, they're 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 right. they're basically <laughs> they're painting this like you're betraying your word, like you're you are. I thought we believed you when you. That's what they're saying. We yeah, believed yeah, you when you yeah, told exactly, us that. Like, which is also it was because a lie. we believed you. Yeah, which that, is that appointee also didn't a get lie. in. No, like, the, the point didn't get in because they didn't have the power to get them in. Right, because they couldn't <laughs> didn't have the votes. It was a, it's a. <laughs> It's it's a silly competition over who gets to interpret history and how it should be interpreted. And it's because one of the rules of the game is that you don't talk about it. You don't talk about the fact that what you want is power for your side and what you want is to beat the other side. For some reason, you can't acknowledge that. I know. I know. Like, I don't get why. Like, they... why, as you said, why couldn't he have said, hey, we want a Republican, we want a conservative justice and not right. a liberal justice? Why like couldn't he just I mean, have said that? That's clearly the truth, and I don't see any reason why he didn't say it. Like, <laughs> and maybe, and maybe he did, and maybe they they are pulling a quote out of context, right? And it's just something I have no idea. I have no, no idea. but I mean, but, it's it's the same thing now, where 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 liberals are saying that we need it to be, we need the the people to decide, which is why we have to wait till actually after the election, as if the people didn't choose like trump time. you know what i mean yeah. no the, this yeah. is whether it's trump now who chooses him or whoever wins who chooses the next not him the, you know the next appointee in a few months it's going to be the people who decided the president who decided the the supreme court electoral college aside but um but no they're saying that instead of saying we want to wait because we want a liberal Supreme Court justice, which is what they want. That's obviously why they want to wait. Yeah, of course. And of course they want it. Like, why wouldn't they want yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know why they 
It's silly. It's silly. It's straight <laughs> up silly. It's it, and it's because they they obviously they they think that this will get votes, right? That this is that presenting it in this way is going to win them something. They have to. I I assume they're not insane and that they have reasons for for these lies, but they're so <laughs> obviously lies that I feel like at some point it's got to backfire, right? At some point, people have got to be like, "That guy's lying," and he's clearly lying. That's clearly not what he wants, and it's. And what he wants is fine, so I'm not sure even why he's lying. <laughs> it's like it's just it's silly. If if you didn't if you've suspected that politicians lie all the time, but you don't follow it closely enough to to really feel confident that you can catch them, you're right. Your suspicion your suspicion is correct. They lie all the time. They're lying even all when it's time. not really necessary. Right. It's not even, even it's, it's not, not even nefarious. It's not even, yeah, it's not like he's hiding anything, yeah, that needs to be buried deep underground. He just wants a Republican president, a Republican judge. Like, <laughs> anyway, it's, it's silly. It's silly. It really is. We've gone on a bit of a tangent, but it's, but it's worth pointing out because it's, because it's creating contra, it's creating news headlines that are not news. Yeah, like none it really of this is. is important or relevant or has anything to do. No, with, I mean we were tempted. What's actually happening? We were tempted to not talk about the Supreme Court appointing this whole situation because <laughs> because most we, of the stuff about it's a joke. Because exactly, it's, because why are we even arguing back and forth about what is a normal process, really? About what Mitch McConnell said four years ago uh-huh. that he thought would go over better with the public. Uh-huh. Like, I uh-huh. It's it's inane and it's a waste of your time to be reading it. So So why we are we talking about this? Time. And, and so why are we talking about it? Why are we talking about the fact And there's that a very good that, reason for why we're talking about this. Yeah. The judges so quick recap. The judges are political appointees. The slide toward from them becoming uh lawyers and judges to becoming political figures. And then from there, you know, people motivated by political reasons and by their own sense of justice. And then moving from there to becoming actually active legislative body, a body that says, these are the laws we want to create. We're looking for the cases that allow us to do that. And people supply them with the cases. You know, they have a good idea of what these judges think and how they will rule in most cases, in many cases, at least. And they, and they then decide some of the most important questions facing America that clearly should be decided by the legislature. And if, if not through law, then through a constitutional amendment. And that's where we are today. And- no, and, and, that's, and that's the thing is, is we now have two completely independent legislative, legislative bodies. One of them that's elected by the people – the other that's appointed by the president and serves for life, meaning that they're they're not even a, a representation of the current president. They're a representation of the past five presidents. And not representatives of the people. Yes. And, it, and, and even of the last five presidents, it's not an equal representation by those five presidents, but right. comes down to, to random chance mixed with strategy. Yeah, mixed and, with strategy. They'll retire when they – if, if they think they can't go very much longer, they often retire during a time when they have a president that they agree with in the hopes of being replaced by someone similar. But but but, but, like but then said, the conclusion is – and then you have the second legislative body, except that this second legislative body trumps the first one. This, this mm-hmm. nine-member body has the final say. 
Yeah, they can, they can, through their normal process, amend the Constitution. Whereas the legislature to amend the Constitution has to do, has to have a high, has to pass a high threshold. <laughs> and has to have, has what, to have every state ratify it. And then have the states ratify it. Well, not right. every state, but they have to have the states ratify have the, a certain number. Right, it has to be ratified. No, and so the question, of course, becomes, what purpose is this system now serving? Because as Dan talked about before, occasionally it does put a break on the process. But that's only good if you don't like what's happening. What if the right. legislature, which is elected by the people, is actually doing what we want, what the people want, except now it can't pass the laws or those laws get stopped because of a nine-person legislature that's appointed is now stopping them. And the, the point is, is that if this system is supposed to be some form of democratic process, you know, it's it's obviously a Republican form of government, which is a form of, of democracy in the sense that it's the people's voice that's supposed to be heard. Yes. Then what are we gaining by having these political appointees be the final say and legislate? What are we gaining by having them be a separate legislature? Because people have argued, and there is an argument made, that the solution here, since the Supreme Court is political, is to make them even more political. To say, hey, if they're a political system, then let's have them be elected. Let's have them, yeah. you know, let's have the Supreme Court be, be elected, have them serve terms, and have them be just an elected legislature. And even if we did that, my question, of course, would then be, why? What purpose? What are we gaining? What are we gaining <laughs> as a country by having this convoluted system? How does this help us? And so unless right. we can find a way that the Supreme Court is adding, then, then clearly something needs to change. And making it more political is not going to do that. Right. And you've, you've, there is an underlying story about the legislature that, that most people have no idea about that has led to most of the power shifting to the Supreme Court. And it's that the legis like if you look at what the legislature does these days, what they vote on, what they do and what they don't do, you should be it's rather shocking how unimportant the legislature is in the government process today. Now they're not unimportant. They're rel relatively unimportant. Yeah, because yeah. because how the system was set up the legislature was supposed to have around 90% of the power. And so when you have a situation where they're looking at at maybe a third of the power or 20% of the power or 40% of the power, they still have a lot of power, but much, much less than you would expect them to have considering they are the most representative body. You know, the Congress right. is the body that truly represents it's the people. It's supposed to be the active body of the yeah. government, yeah. Yeah, it's supposed to be the one that does things. Yeah, the others, it really is. The others enforce, they react, they do. But yeah, it's the legislature running. that's supposed to be legislating. It's supposed to be the one creating the laws that influence us, and it's not the and it's often not the case. Yeah, it's 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 rarely the case, I would say. Now they could still, as you said, I think all the power is still there, but in practice they do almost nothing. If you look they at what they don't exercise that the, power. They don't exercise that power. If you look at what the what they do these days, they pass omnibus bills that fund everything. That's critically important. 
But how much do they actually do with that other than say, yeah, go ahead? Very little. How many things are they actually checking? How many things are they stopping? How many things are they, are they creating even? It's, it's not that much. Um, it's around the edges and it's, and it's the different pieces come together in these omnibus bills and they, they fight for their cut and the every interest gets represented in some way or another <laughs> and gets their piece. And most of the legislature has nothing to say on that and they vote it through. It's not even a deliberative process the way they vote it through. It's just, they just, they just rubber stamp it. They move it through. And that's, that's, that's the most important thing they do. Now, at any moment, the, there are serious debates about the current state of the laws on things like immigration. At any moment, this, the legislature could make laws that change that. And they don't. They fiddle with the edges occasionally. They adapt tiny portions. Every, Republicans don't like it the way it is. Democrats don't like it the way it is. Republicans say enforce the laws it is. It's on the books. You got to enforce it. Democrats say don't. Neither of them address it when they have the power. No, and that's and that's a great point. And immigration is the great example of that. Is that if you look at the current immigration setup and the laws and how they're changing and how they aren't changing, the majority of that is being decided by the executive and judicial branches. You know what I yes. mean? There there mm -hmm. are changes that are occurring in, in immigration, and most of those are coming from those two two branches. Yes. You know, yes, and, Trump and, is passing these executive orders and, and changing these things within the executive branch that directly control immigration unilaterally. And the Supreme mm -hmm. Court is ruling on immigration and issues and changing significant things. And regardless of how you feel about immigration, the fact of the matter is, is that it's an issue that most people care about one way or the other, but it's not the Congress that's deciding. It's the other two branches. Even though, right. as Dan said, it could be the Congress who decides, but they've abdicated that power and they've done it for a very, <laughs> a very sad reason. And the reason is, is that it's much easier for them because as a, as a political candidate, as, as a Congress, as a Congress person, your goal is to get reelected because, because your, your, your seat is your power. And the easiest way to get reelected is to be as uncontroversial as possible. To say you feel this way about immigration, but then don't vote on any laws that deal with immigration in order to contradict what you just said. And the easiest way to do that is to have the other branches decide. You control the money, which is a lot of power and a lot of influence that you can use. And they do use that, as Dan said, as there are all these earmarks and things that are put in for their particular states, for the particular businesses that they want to gain favor with, and all of that that goes on, which benefits them immensely. And then by not actually deciding on all the key issues, they avoid all the controversy that would stop them from regaining their seat. Yeah, it's gotten to the point where on... Issues that are controversial, they almost never vote. And if they vote, they do it secretly. They'll hold closed votes to just, just, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll, they can disband the, uh, they control the rules of how their, their meetings work and they can have informal votes and they can have secret votes if they want to. 
What we just described there and what Brad summed up really well on, on immigration plays out in every controversial issue to some degree or another in the legislature. If you go and you watch, uh, I've, I've heard some great speeches from legislators and they're always talking to empty rooms. <laughs> they're always talking to empty rooms. They get up there and they say their piece and that piece is recorded and the sound bites are taken and, uh, and they're played for their re-election campaign. Yep, and they're argued and discussed by the pundits and, and they make news, news and, headlines. Right, right. Which is a reference right. to what we said before when we talked about the DNC and the RNC, that so much of the political game is about the words that you say and not about what you do. And, and that's part of the reason why, because you're not really doing anything. Another interesting aspect of this, of the abdication of power from the legislature is the growth of federal agencies. So the legislature creates many of the agencies in the government. Some of them are created by the executive branch's ways to organize it. Many of them are created by the legislature, and the nature of these branches is quasi-legislative, quasi-judicial, quasi-executive. They're bureaucracies, and so they do almost everything. You know, you can't have a bureaucracy. I mean, at some point, they're going to, to enforce the law. They're going to have to create new, new rulings and codes, and which is another form of legislation that these agencies do. And then, of course, they're going to have to to decide on it. And in many ways, they become, in their sphere, their own little government. They are their own little government. They, they write their laws, they interpret their laws, and they judge people on their laws. That's a great way of... And these agencies, exercising legislative power, along with the other branches' powers, will create the laws over their sphere, and they will update them when necessary, as Brad said all without the legislative input. The legislative body that makes laws creates this agency. The agency becomes independent from them in many ways. There are, there are a series of Supreme Court cases that are interesting that show the ways in which these, these are now independent agencies and they are not accountable to the legislature because they're partially executive and it's you know, it's it's a mess. If this sounds like a mess, it is a mess. <laughs> it is, it is a mess. absolutely a mess. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't. The three branches are not distinct in these agencies, and these agencies make most of the legislation that affects your life on a day to day basis in terms of governing regulations and in terms of the fines and the things that affect government. In terms of the fines and things that elect governments, these agencies are the most important part of government, and they are unelected. They are unelected and they are not accountable to you. And in many ways, they're not accountable to the legislature or the president, depending on which ones you're looking at and how exactly they, they, they categorize them. And so the legislature avoids the controversial issues, executive orders, and what's the word I'm looking for? Executive, executive orders. Yeah, executive orders. Yeah, I was like. Executive orders and the judiciary decide most of the major controversies in ways that doesn't blow back on the legislature. The legislature doesn't have to deal with the day-to-day. -day. The agencies deal with that. The agencies deal with most of the points of contact between people and, and where they run into that. And then, of course, there's the state governments, which handle the police, largely speaking, and other things like that. 
And so when you look at what the legislature, what's supposed to be the primary driver of our government, the, the balance of power, most of the power is in the legislature. They are the one that's supposed to be accountable. They have passed on most of that power to other groups who are exercising it in their name, or at least which they're allowing to. At any point, they could make laws that get rid of these agencies that they created. At any point, they could make laws that check the Supreme Court and say, no, look, you interpreted our law this way. Here's what we meant. And we're going to make it really clear by changing that law mm-hmm. <laughs> and creating a new one and saying, this is what we mean. They can also, as Brad indicated, they can, they can make laws that curtail the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. There are a number of powers they have over the Supreme Court that they've almost never exercised. Yeah. I say almost only because I haven't heard of any accounts. It's possible that it's never. Yeah, it's they, at least they, they haven't significantly never. exercised it. Which tells you something, that they don't want to, right? They, yeah. If they wanted to, the they could be doing there. all of this. If they wanted to, they could be the primary driver of government, and we could listen to their debates as if they mattered, right? As if you could watch C-SPAN as if what you were going to see would affect your life. (laughs) Because it would at that point. It would at that point. Instead, it's the Supreme Court, and it's the president, and it's these agencies in the background. And and part of the reason we bring this up is because is because people will argue that the uh, the Supreme Court has gone off the rails and has taken all this power. Or, conversely, that the executive branch has gone off the rails and taken all this power. And they'll argue that independently. You know, it's two separate arguments. Mm-hmm. That, these, mm-hmm. that these branches have just run amok and stolen all this power. When that's not what's happened. They haven't taken this power by force. They've been given it. You know, they... They've been yeah. given this power, and there's no there's no struggle here. There's no theft that's occurred. There's no injured party. These these branches are mutually benefiting each other with the current setup. Yeah, yeah. And that's and that's the real problem. If they had run amok, if they had stolen this power. It would actually be much better because then the legislature would have an incentive to get their power back. You know what I mean? If it had been stolen, if they wanted that power, they could get it back because the legislature actually has a lot of power. And people see that and they're like, why don't they do it? And the reason they don't do it is because they don't want to. Right. And they they hide that under the the argument. I mean, we we this – I haven't said it yet this episode. The legislature blames the other party. Right. The legislature always blames the other party for why they can't do the thing that they should do. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And and most of the time it's BS. <laughs> they they'll be really loud about what they want to do with power when they're out of power. And then when and they then have get in power, power and they won't do those things. <laughs> and they have the power and they still bl- and they blame the party, the other party in both cases. When they have what they really have is a nice a nice system that they're that at least the enough of them are happy with that it continues and that it, and they don't get up and flex their muscles and curtail and reclaim all of these, these things that they could be doing from these other branches. They really could do that at any time if they wanted to. At some point you have to say, if I can do it at any time, if they wanted to, the reason they haven't done it is they don't want to. 
That's it's, at some point you've got to make that leap and be like, wait, maybe if they're telling me that they want to do it and they never do it, maybe they don't want to do it. Yeah. And that's, there are things like that in both parties that people who are loyal to those parties should, should start to recognize if you look closely. Be like, wait a second, they say this and it never happens. Maybe it never happens because they don't want to do it because they do have the power from time to time and they don't do it. No, and 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 the point that we're making with all this, besides the obvious point that the the the, the legislature has has definitely failed in their responsibility. But the point that we're trying to make is that there are, there are ideas about things that you can do to fix the Supreme Court, and one of the more common ideas is to have the legislature check them, have the other branches exercise their power to check the Supreme Court. And on paper, that's a fantastic idea, but it's simply not going to happen with how things are set up now. And that's the point that we're trying to make is that there's the incentives are set up such with this game that's been created that no one's going to change anything, which is why things haven't changed. Yeah, so, they're willing participants. Whatever they may say, they're willing participants because they could stop it at any time. So if you actually want a change and a real change, then this is what we suggest. And it's it's surprisingly simple. And <laughs> and the funny thing is, is that you're you're going to hear people, people will occasionally propose this and every time they will get struck down and we'll talk about why they get struck down in a minute. But the thing, the thing, the thing that could easily remedy this is to hold another constitutional convention because, and this is very simple, it can actually bypass the entire federal government that the states can actually call for a constitutional convention because as we explained before, the federal government, the different branches are happy where they're at. They have the power that they want. They have the ability to blame others for, for – Yeah, they have the plausible for, deniability. Exactly. Exactly. In a really good position. Let so the they're, people appointed for life make the controversial decisions. Exactly. no blowback. Exactly. So if you really want to make substantial change, you have to bypass that process – and restructure how the Constitution, as Dan was talking about, and by Constitution, I don't just mean the document, but I mean the actual makeup of the federal What's government happening? is set up. So you can actually put more clear things in place to limit and explain the scope of the Supreme Court. Now, here's why every time this gets brought up, it gets shut down, because every time it gets brought up, everyone all the political experts are like, no, you shouldn't do that. All the congressmen say, oh, no, we shouldn't do that. And the reason is because, as we talked about before, they're all benefiting from this current system. So, of course, the people who are benefiting from the system don't want to change the system, just as if you had, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's 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 like asking a corrupt business to clean up its act by itself and expecting them to to change themselves what where's their incentive to do that you know right if you ask the business you got this corrupt business and you say to him look we think that we've been thinking about it and we don't see how this is going to change itself so what we want to do is bring in groups that are completely outside of your business to come in and clean it up what do you think and the guy says, I don't, I don't think that would be a good idea. No, that's a terrible no, a good idea. Thought. 
but I think it, I think it would really go off the rails here and uh, and too dangerous. Too no, dangerous. and the, it and might that's too much. and that's basically that's exactly the equivalent what like of asking. what we're talking about is of yeah. of is is bringing in an independent audit. Of course, they don't want that, and of course, our current government doesn't want an independent audit. That's the last thing they want. They don't want the states and the people of those states to decide what the structure of the government could be, because it'll be completely different from what we have now in the sense that it will remove all of those perks and advantages that they are enjoying right now. But the purpose of this federal government is not to make the life of these political officers easy. The point is to govern well. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. It's a, it's such a strange thing. And, uh, and it even, and we're not proposing that all the, again, we, we do not mean to imply that there's a conspiracy theory or that there is, there are bad actors in every level. There, there aren't and there isn't. There doesn't need to be. It's the way the incentives align. Yeah. And even even a good person who's elected to Congress, who sees that there's some corruption and that some things need to change and that this the, the, the Supreme Court's kind of a game and that it's and that these things don't make some sense and wants to change them, feels themselves in a position to change them and is going to discourage an outside thing like a constitutional convention. And uh, and it makes sense why they're not a player in the Constitutional Convention. They have the power or think they do to change things from where they are. Why would they then propose something else? Why would they then assert that some other group needs to do it when they're already doing it or so they think? No, and and I and I I was going to add, you know, in your terms of talking about bad players and good players, a lot of people will say, "Hey, no, I've talked to my congressman and they're actually trying to fight for me in Congress. They're just not able to make any headway because and they'll argue and i've heard them argue about how there's Mm -hmm. this entrenched system that makes it very difficult to get anything done so even though you may have good players who want to get things done the fact is is that when everyone else in the system or the majority of everyone else in the system doesn't want to it doesn't matter what those one or two (laughs) individuals want Right. You would, you wouldn't need just a lot of people. You would need, you, I don't even think you would need a majority. I think you'd need a, a, a large a vast majority, majority to really majority. change anything because it would take so many, there are so many layers, so many layers of government, so many layers of rules, so many layers of traditions and things that it's a, uh, that it becomes, that it becomes the way this is, which is why, which is why, as Brad mentioned, we didn't want to talk about the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court is at best a symptom of an enormous problem, <laughs> right? Of, an, of, a, of a huge shift in how even the most, you know, uh, even people who love the idea of democratic government and who, who, uh, who basically everybody, I think, I don't think anybody would look at this system and be like, yeah, that's what I, that's how I would have built it. That's, that's how it should be working. Like nobody, nobody thinks that it's, it's a, it's a perversion of other things and uh, and it's shifted this way over time and i think the shift as we mentioned was it was inevitable in some ways as the scope of government increased and as these things changed and so the idea that that seems like a uh, a sweeping critique of the government yes <laughs> it yes, is it a is. sweeping critique it is a sweeping critique 
It is. A Supreme Court justice appointment shouldn't matter. It shouldn't determine the fate of the American future. And it does. It could. It could, theoretically, yeah. No, and, and that's and that's crazy. And that's, and that's crazy. crazy. That's and crazy. that's why there needs to be a change. And that's why we think that and 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 a lot of people say, oh, you shouldn't have a constitutional convention because who knows? Who knows what could come out of that constitutional convention? And and I think that's a that's a a, a poor argument. Number one, because look how broken the current system is. So that if you're worried is that we're going to have something bad, we already have something bad. And number two, whatever the Constitutional Convention comes up with has to be ratified by three-fourths of the states. So you're talking about a right. supermajority of everyone would have to be on board with what's created. And and so how are so so the idea that that they're going to pull something over on everyone is is ludicrous you know because people people reference the first constitutional convention like look at how right. how wild they were then and all that they did and i'm like wait a second but that's the government that you say you love was created by something you know it's it's this weird catch-22 of people <laughs> say hey the constitutional convention the original one was so amazing that we're scared of ever having one again yeah you know yeah, it's it's, a, it's this weird it's this weird it is odd it is odd. I've, I'm always shocked by the people who, like people I was convinced would absolutely be thrilled about the idea of a constitutional convention, would not even entertain the idea. And, I, and it's, I'm always surprised by that. They, they dismiss it out of hand. And, it's, and if you say that, wait, the Supreme Court issues are part of a bigger picture that's played out across hundreds of years and includes all three of the other branches I say three because I'm counting the the administrative the bureaucracy state, the bureaucracy as its own group. It should be. It does. It works differently, and it does different things than any of the branches. Yeah, that's fair. Can do fair. them in different ways. Um, it uh, and maybe for better. Even I'm I'm open to the you know I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying that's evil. I'm not saying that the change to the way it works is is bad. But you cannot fix the Supreme Court in isolation. Because power at the top, the way that the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches work depends in a big way on how the other branches behave. Yeah. A legislature that will not decide the controversial things, that will not be what it was supposed to be, will defer more and more power to the other governments. And maybe yeah, it'll it manifest differently. If you could change the Supreme Court and, and maybe the Supreme Court would be fine after that, but it won't. But it wouldn't fix the problem. Yeah, more it would create would a vacuum and more would yeah. go to the other groups. And if you don't decide where it goes, who knows where it would end up? It wouldn't default back to the legislature. Most likely it would end up either with no, the bureaucracy step up and vote or the issues. president. Yeah, yeah, they're and not going to legislate. And is that necessarily going to be better? No, it, it's not. It's just going to be different. Just going to be different. So the bigger picture is necessary here. That's why, like, people are talking about, well, Amy Coney Barrett and what she's going to do. And Yes, I mean it matters, but it's also it's also such a small piece of the bigger picture. And it's and whatever you think of this of a good judge or a bad judge and the damage they can do and the good they can do. It's 
it's beside the point in some ways if what you want is good government. Because it, <laughs> having two legislatures is not a good way to deliver it. Having this group that's doing <laughs> these and making these decisions uh, is is just far from ideal, to say the least. And having the, the agencies doing most of the legislating, having the president doing a significant amount through through executive actions, it's 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 a hot mess. And if you weren't aware that it's a hot mess, you are now. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> You're, <laughs> You're welcome. It's why uh, and why we wanted to avoid the topic to some degree because we kept thinking we don't really care because it won't matter that much to the Constitution, which is ironic, right? <laughs> but the Constitution, by that we mean what actually how the government actually works. The Supreme Court, though they have the power to interpret the Constitution per se, do not actually have that much, won't make much of a difference in the actual Constitution. And that's where the problem lies or so. So we we believe. As Brad was saying with the a constitutional convention, even if it didn't finish, in some ways would push the legislature to act. Right. If you yeah. if you do these, if you did a constitutional convention, even if nothing came of it, the events themselves would cause changes. They would cause the redress in the way the powers are divided. They would cause different interactions between the branches that could check one another better and and uh, reestablish something more akin to what I think yeah. people want. Even just a serious push for a constitutional convention could actually cause the federal government to change itself in order to avoid that audit. Yeah, yeah. And with that, thank you guys for listening and tune in as we continue to discuss the coming election and try and make make some sense of it, if that's possible. <laughs> Till next time. <laughs> <laughs>